Well, thanks, Brooke and Sarah. We are glad that you are here with us today. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and the term Advent simply means coming, and it's the time of year. It's these four weeks leading up to Christmas when we think about, uh, hopefully in a, in a helpful way, uh, why Jesus came, uh, the purpose of his coming to earth. And this year, we're going to study four of Jesus' own statements about why he came. In his own words, we're going to hear Jesus tell us. This week, we'll hear uh, from Luke 19, the passage read, Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Next week, we'll see from Matthew 10, Jesus actually said, I came to bring a sword. And that may be very counterintuitive, may even be troubling to you initially, but there's a very important truth behind Jesus' words there. The third week, Jesus said, I came to do the Father's will. And then on Christmas Eve, we will consider how Jesus came that we might have life, might have it in abundance. As Tony mentioned earlier, we provided these just little invite cards for Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. It's a time of year when people might naturally be open to coming to worship if they're not already. And so we we have these at the uh, in the foyer. You can just grab one on your way out and just ask God. Say, is there somebody that you think I you would like me to invite? and then just uh, invite them to come with you. We have two services in the morning and two in the afternoon and evening. When you think about it, studying why Jesus came is is important for some very tangible, practical reasons. First of all, uh, if we understand why Jesus came, then we will have a clue into what Jesus actually wants to do in our lives. Jesus is still doing today the same things that he did when he walked on the earth. As well, understanding why Jesus came will help us understand discipleship because as disciples of Jesus, as apprentices of his, we are to follow him in doing the same types of things that he is doing. And so today, for example, if Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is lost, it will clue us in that we are to do the same things following behind him. And so today we consider this uh, familiar passage to many. It's an account of Jesus seeking and saving a specific man named Zacchaeus. And it's this fascinating, uh, tangible example of the way Jesus pursues people who are lost. And we'll have to talk about that term, what that means and doesn't mean a bit later. But I hope this passage is an encouragement and a challenge to you today. And so Jesus' statement, I came to seek and save that which is lost, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. There's an account in the previous chapter in Luke 18 that really sets up the context by way of contrast. There there Luke records how Jesus had a conversation with a rich young ruler, and he came to Jesus and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after a bit of conversation, Jesus said, uh, for you, you need to sell everything you have. You need to give the proceeds to the poor and then follow me. Jesus did not make that demand of everybody, but he, he knew that this man's God was money. And you cannot, you can try, but you cannot serve two masters. And so he said, sell everything you have, give the proceeds to the poor, come and follow me. Luke records that when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. 
And next we read that Jesus looked at him, and I, I suspect Jesus had, had compassion and mercy in his eyes, but he looked at him and he said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who overheard this, they wondered out loud, well, if that's the case, who can be saved? Because in their mind, rich people had experienced the blessing of God. Those are people favored by God. And so if they can't enter the kingdom of heaven uh, easily, then what chance do the rest of us, of us have? And in response to that, that question, Jesus' reply was, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. In other words, by the grace of God, even wealthy people, even people who, whose God is money can come to the place where they renounce that God and they follow God, the, God of the, uh, the God of the Bible and enter into eternal life. We come to Luke 19. Zacchaeus is an example of that type of man. By the grace of God, he entered, he was a wealthy man, but he entered the kingdom of heaven and experienced life. So we pick up the narrative in Luke 19, verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Tax collectors, as you may know, were despised by their fellow Jews because they were employed by the Roman Empire, and they had occupied the land of Israel. Uh, Zacchaeus would have been especially despised because he was a chief tax collector. He was something of a regional manager over the other tax collectors. But there is a difference with this tax collector, collector. He was spiritually curious. He was spiritually interested. And we see that in verse 3. <clears throat> it says, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So for those of you who are over 25 years old, when was the last time you climbed a tree? <laughs> if you're like me, you gave that up long time ago. So Zacchaeus, he wanted to see Jesus, so he knew the route he was taking, so he ran on ahead. He climbs up into a tree, and that indicates appearances. He didn't care about appearances. He just wanted to see Jesus, and it turns out that Jesus wanted to see him also. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down for I must stay at your house today. And that's an example of what scholars call a divine necessity. Jesus said, I must stay at your house. He had this appointment from God, a divine appointment, to go to Zacchaeus' house, to eat his food, sit at his table, and talk with him. And, and this thrilled Zacchaeus. He wasn't normally wanted by anybody desirable. Verse 6, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
And that was the common reaction of religious people, the Jewish authorities especially, to Jesus. In their mind, if you're really a prophet or a man of God, Zacchaeus is the type of person you avoid. You don't cavort with him. You don't go into his house. You avoid him because he is a sinner. He was the first and foremost in that category in their minds. But Jesus had a very different attitude, and we see it in this passage. Jesus elsewhere said, he said, I'm a physician. I deal with sick people, okay? (laughs) And here he says, I'm a redeemer. I came to seek and save people who are lost, people like Zacchaeus. And uh, and verse 8 shows how Zacchaeus responded to Jesus. And this narrative is very compressed. We don't have all the dialogue here, but we we get the sense that Jesus had been in Zacchaeus' house for a good long while. They had had conversation, and even that Zacchaeus had come to a place of faith, of trust in Jesus. Because what Zacchaeus says here is an expression of repentance. He explains, Jesus, this is what my repentance will look like. Jesus didn't demand this of him, This is what Zacchaeus gladly decided to do as an expression of repentance because of his newfound faith in Jesus. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Since Zacchaeus had sinned against people financially, by taking more taxes from them than was proper. His repentance involved making restitution financially. And Zacchaeus does far more than he was required to do by the Old Testament law. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give half of what I own. Think of, think of half of what you own. He said, I'll give half of what I own to the poor. And then if I've defrauded anybody of anything... I'm not just going to pay them back. I'm going to pay them back fourfold. That is extravagant generosity. And and when Jesus saw that, he saw that as a sign of salvation. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. His, His generosity was tangible evidence that he had experienced a radical reorientation of his life. He experienced salvation. He had, expended, he had spent his entire career of defrauding people. And now he was eager, eager to give away more than was required. And all Jews were ethnically children of Abraham by birth. But this declaration is that Zacchaeus was also a son of Abraham by faith. Paul said in, in Galatians 3, 7, that we are truly descendants of Abraham if we share Abraham's faith. And so think with me about the, the contrast between the rich young ruler in chapter 18. Uh, he went away sad, but Zacchaeus was exuberant and joyful. This man apparently clung to his money, whereas Zacchaeus rather voluntarily let go of his money. And uh, it's my observation that generous people tend to be joyful people. They just are. They give money away, and they're joyful about it. People who love money, on the other hand, and hold it tight-fisted tend to be miserable people. And it reflects whether or not a person has experienced salvation uh, 
or not. In verse 10, Jesus frames up this encounter with Zacchaeus with this statement. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man is basically shorthand for the Messiah. It's a term taken from Daniel chapter 7. He's the figure, this human figure who would be given all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus said, I am the Son of Man and I came to earth to befriend people like Zacchaeus because I came to seek and save that which is lost. Now think with me carefully about what lost means. Uh, Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart, he says this, I think is really very insightful, profound. He says, to be lost means to be out of place. If you're lost, you're not where you should be. Something that is lost is something that is not where it's supposed to be and therefore is not integrated into the life of the one to whom it belongs and to whom it is lost. And so if your car keys are lost, they still start your car, they still still open the doors of your car, but since they're lost, they're not available to you. They're no good for starting your car to you. And in a similar way, if a person is lost, that person is out of place in relation to God and therefore not in a position to experience God and to be used by God in the ways that he desires. And so Zacchaeus was lost because he was not in the right place with God or with people. And so Zacchaeus did not love God with all his heart, soul, and might. Zacchaeus loved money. And Zacchaeus did not love his neighbor as himself. Zacchaeus defrauded his his neighbor. And so Zacchaeus was profoundly lost. He wasn't where he should be in relation to God or in relation to people. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save people just like Zacchaeus. He came to seek and save the lost. The other primary place in Luke where Jesus talked about seeking that which has been lost is chapter 15. And there again, the, the religious leaders were grumbling at Jesus because of the company that he kept. Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. In response to their grumbling, Jesus told three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And in each of those parables, the the emphasis is how what was lost was so valuable to its owner that they just abandoned all all, uh, uh, everything they were doing to go seek and save what was lost. And uh, the sheep, for example, uh, he was so valuable to the owner that he left behind the 99 to seek out the one that was lost. And so Jesus came to seek and save the lost. If that's the case, we need to understand the implications of that. But first, I want to just make a couple of clarifications. Uh, We've already mentioned one of them, and then we'll talk about the implications. By way of clarification, first of all, just because something is lost doesn't mean that it's not valuable, okay? If something is lost, it doesn't mean it's not valuable. 
Uh, for example, most of us have lost our, our phones at some point, right? And at that point, you didn't say, well, it's lost, so I don't care about it. Now, chances are you just dropped everything and said, my life will not be the same until I find that phone, right? We go to extravagant means to, to find what has been lost. And in a similar way, since all humans are created in the image of God, every single human being, even lost human beings, perhaps especially lost human beings, are valuable to God. Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. If, that, if, if we weren't valuable, he would not have paid such a high price to seek and save us. <clears throat> Second, as, as Dallas Willard points out, it is very possible to be lost and not know it. Uh, he actually points out many a driver is lost before he knows it, though rarely before his wife knows it, right? <laughs> Some of us may have experienced that time or three. <clears throat> In the same way, uh, you know, many people are completely oblivious to the fact that they are lost spiritually. It would just never occur to them that they are lost spiritually. And in the New Testament, the Pharisees are the prime example of this. I mean, they had more Bible knowledge than every, anybody else. They were more rigorous in their disciplines than anybody else. But when Jesus came to describe them in, in Matthew 23, Jesus said they not only had not entered the kingdom of God, but that they were sons of hell. And so they were profoundly lost, but they had no idea that that was the case. And the same thing is true today. Many things can mask our lostness, affluence, competence, achievement, popularity, even Bible knowledge. This may be a shocker. Pastors can be lost and not know it. There are so many things in our world, and in, especially in an affluent culture such as ours, that can mask our lostness. And we're just like, I'm good. I'm good. Don't bother me with that. Well, let's think about a couple implications of Jesus' statement, I came to seek and save that which is lost. So first, what are the implications for what Jesus wants to do in our lives in light of his statement? Well, the short answer is Jesus wants to seek and save us. Jesus notices us. He moves toward, towards us. And if we let him, he will come into our lives, into our homes. He will sit at our tables. He will talk with us. He will open our eyes and he will save us by faith in him. As I study this, when I think about seeking and saving the lost, I, I, I think back to the time when I came to Christ. And some of you heard this a hundred times, but bear with me. But my first year and a half in college, I just ran with the pack, did what everybody else was doing, partying and everything that went with it. Uh, but when I was a sophomore in college, uh, turns out I became like Zacchaeus. Uh, if you had asked me those first year and a half, Steve, are you lost spiritually? I would have been insulted. I would have been offended. I would have said something like, I'm not lost. I've gone to church my whole life. My dad is a pastor. I read the Bible occasionally, and I am, am probably better than most people that I know in terms of morality and how I live my life. 
But then I met these guys who, who had an actual relationship with Jesus, and they just raved about him. And I, in retrospect, I became like, like Zacchaeus. I wanted to see Jesus. I wanted to keep my distance. I didn't really want to be pointed out, you know, in front of a crowd. But I wanted to see why they raved about him, why they had this, for they were on first-name basis with Jesus. What is this about? And it turns out that uh, Jesus, during that season of my life, he noticed me, he drew, drew close to me, he opened my eyes, and he brought me to himself. And he did it through these three guys, Stu Jay and Joel and, uh, and Bob. And after a while, after interacting with them and hearing the way they, they talked and seeing the way they lived their lives, it was the most obvious thing in my life to wholeheartedly trust in Jesus. I mean, I just couldn't imagine doing anything else. And I would say to you here today that, that uh, if I ask you, are you lost? And you can't say, I was lost, but now I'm found. It may be that you are in a place just like Zacchaeus. Being lost, again, it's not an insult. You're just admitting, I'm not where I should be in relation to God. And if you never admit that, you can never turn from yourself and your sin and turn to God. The fact that you're here today uh, su suggests that you're at least a little bit like Zacchaeus. You, you may want a glimpse of Jesus. You may want some idea of who he is. And I would just encourage you, Make the biggest move, move toward God that you possibly can. It may just be a glance right now. Uh, I'm looking up for a sec. It may be a prayer. But you may be at a place in your life where you can move toward him. Read the Bible. Read the Bible with somebody. Have spiritual conversations with a Christian that you know. Because Jesus came to seek and save people exactly like you. Don't believe the lie, well, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I believe. You don't know what I do, I've done. You may be the type of person who has looked down on Christians your whole life, and when they aren't around, you mock them and you make fun of them. I used to do the same thing. <laughs> Honestly, I did. Jesus came to seek and save you. Believe it. Again, I can't, like Zacchaeus, I don't know if Jesus is going to tell you sell half of what you have and if you've defrauded somebody, give back four times. He might say that. I can't predict what he'll say. You may have a harder life to begin with anyway, but it will be a life that's far superior to anything you've ever experienced. Well, the other implication, what are the implications for our discipleship? And this is where we need a very robust understanding of the body of Christ, and uh, sometimes when you hear the term body of Christ, it's kind of Christian slang for church people. We're the body of Christ. Well, the body of Christ is actually Jesus embodied on earth, okay? So 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked on the earth, he lived in a flesh and blood body. That was the body of Christ, okay? That's the body that died on the cross, that was raised from the dead. He was given an immortal body, but there's, <coughs> but there's continuity there. The body that went in the grave came out of the grave, raised immortal, and he is bodily enthroned at the right hand of God. So his flesh and blood body, his resurrected body is no longer here. 
That's why Jesus says, my people are now the body of Christ. We are now the flesh and blood embodiment of Jesus. Jesus lives inside all believers through the promised Holy Spirit. And corporately, that means that we are to say and do the very things that Jesus did when he walked on this earth. And when he walked on this earth, one of the things that he did was to seek and save the lost. Therefore, as the body of Christ, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to notice people who are out of place with God. We don't live our lives saying, well, I'm good. I don't care about other people. No, we are to notice people that are out of place when it comes to their relationship with God. We are to befriend them, which is different from just being friendly. Friendly Christians are better than unfriendly Christians, but we're talking about people that actually befriend people who are far from God. Let them see an insider's view of what the life is all about, what a relationship with God is all about. We befriend people, and as we talked about for 10 months in our study of the book of Acts, we are to be witnesses. And so we talk about what we've experienced, how they can experience the same thing through faith in Jesus. And I realize that this is a huge topic. There's many aspects of participating with Jesus in his mission of seeking and saving that which is lost. But today I want to just ask you one simple question very directly. I want you to sit with this. I want you to ponder this. Do you believe, if you're, and I'm talking to you, to those of you who are, are followers of Christ, you trust in Christ, you're following him. Do you believe that Jesus is willing and able to seek and save the lost through you? Honestly, do you believe, not just in theory, but do you believe that Jesus is willing and able to seek and save the lost through you? I will tell you that if you actually believe that, it's a humbling thing. It's not a pride-inducing pride, pride, uh, thing. It's a humbling thing, and it will change the way you live your life. You may not believe this, but there are seasons in my life where I felt like, yeah, I'm not that kind of person. I, I don't really have this life. I don't really have this, this freedom to talk about Christ, this freedom to show people Christ. And during those seasons, I live my life kind of in a stealth sort of way. But when I'm thinking clearly, a.k.a. biblically, and I'm, I'm, I truly understand who I am as part of the body of Christ and wh who Jesus is and what he wants to do on this earth, that I live my life very differently. I walk into my days with a sense of anticipation. And when I am talking with people, I'm asking different questions, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, uh, Father, are you drawing this person to yourself? God, is there something you want me to say? Is there something you want me to do here? Is it possible that there is a, a friendship that you're giving me? And friendships are a gift. Is this a friendship that you are inviting me into for your glory? And I find that, that when I am thinking in these terms, I live my life very differently. Believing that Jesus wants to seek and save people through you will change the way you live your life. Today, as we come to the Lord's Supper, uh, allow the bread and the cup to remind you that we have been bought with a price. 
This is what it costs Jesus to come and seek and save that which is lost. And so if you're a follower of Christ, if you trusted in him alone for your salvation, we would encourage, we would love for you to join us if you didn't get the elements when you came in. Feel free to slip out into the foyer and get that now. But as we uh, have a few moments of reflection, just consider what we've talked about today. How is Jesus pursuing you this morning? Uh, in what ways is he pursuing others through you? Heavenly Father, now we, we pause and we remember that uh, Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was spilt for us in seeking and saving us. During this time, Father, uh, give us a fresh appreciation for what it cost him to seek and save us. And God, open our eyes to the ways that you want to seek and save others through us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he handed it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, handed it to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who is willing to lay aside his heavenly prerogatives, become one of us, and seek and save that which is lost. We thank you for his death, resurrection, and enthronement. We thank you that we have a risen Savior. And God, we pray that as the body of Christ, that we would take up his mission of seeking and saving the lost as well. We ask for your grace, your mercy. We pray that as we walk through this week, that you would open up our eyes to these amazing realities. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.